You know, when we sing those psalms, I think of uh, the Apostle Paul. And the Bible tells us he and his men were in prison often. You know, and I can, I can, they were, they were singing. And you know, you might think, what, what would they sing? Well, they'd sing Psalm 62. They'd sing Psalm 23. They'd sing Psalm 19. And when the guards came in, I can imagine the Apostle Paul breaking out into explanation. He's my Redeemer. That's Jesus Christ. He's my Redeemer. He's your Redeemer too if you believe. Can't you hear Him? They're shaking the foundations of the prisons they sat in. With these mighty words we sing even now. We join the course of the saints. It stretches back to Adam. Stretches back to Adam. And we sing the praises of our King. And we, um, today you might have come, and I, if you did, to hear an exposition on mothers. I, 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 I didn't prepare that. I told someone earlier, I'm shy of that because I, I've heard so many bad sermons on Mother's Day. But I do want to say at the beginning of this sermon that it's not wrong to honor your mother. It's commanded. Honor your father and mother, for this is right. And it's the first promise, the first command given with a promise. That you shall live long in the land. And so it's right for us to honor our mothers on a day like today, but on every day. Honor your mother. You don't know when your mother will not be able to remember your name. It can happen in a moment. You don't know when your mother will be killed in a tornado or die of a heart attack. So honor your mother with your life and with your words and with your prayers and with your service to the King of Kings every day. And today call her and tell her you love her. Or hug her neck. Tell her how thankful you are for her in God and in Christ. So mothers, I honor you by preaching the Word of God. And by instructing your children, as I know you faithfully do. I, it doesn't take long for me, as I intermingle and mix in our society, in our, in our little place here in Cone County. I, I, I left yesterday a t-ball game. And uh, we had a good game, had a good day. But I left thinking, Grace Fellowship has the greatest collection of families. In all the community. By God's grace, He's brought us together. And you mothers are like concrete for us. <laughs> and you're training your children. You're passing on a great heritage. And I'm proud of you and thankful for you, each of you. So, I do honor you. But I'm going to preach from Ephesians 3. Mainly because we've been away from it for so long. I've missed it like a long lost friend. The letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus, 
the letter which was to be circulated among all the churches in Asia Minor to instruct them on how to understand the gospel, how to trust Christ and the gospel, and then how to live the gospel. You know, the great transition, we're not there yet, but the great transition that happens after that closing amen at the end of three is that word, therefore. You know, he, the big therefore. In all of Paul's, you ought to read Paul's epistles looking for the big, bold letter, therefore. Because it's coming, and when it comes, it transitions from theology, proper, doctrine, heavy, saturated with truth, it transitions after that big bold therefore, which comes in verse 1 of chapter 4 for us in Ephesians, to say, now live according to what I've just told you about the gospel. And then he'll spend some time fleshing that out, putting it in practical command. Because the most practical thing you will ever learn is right theology. The most practical thing anyone will ever teach you is a right view of God, His Word, man, the Gospel, the life of the Gospel, and the Kingdom that is coming. That's the most practical thing you'll ever learn. It's not heady and academic. So we come to chapter 3. And we have been away a while, but you remember chapter one in a nutshell is the eternal view, the view of the eternal work of God in ages past to bring about salvation. Then we transition in chapter two, broadly saying, this is how you come into salvation by grace alone. And this is what the gospel has done for you. It is, it has brought you into unity with God. And into unity with one another. Gentiles and Jews. The center wall of division has been torn down. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. And so you're no longer Jew. And you're no longer Gentile. You're a third race. You're a new people. You're Christians. You're the church. And now we're in chapter 3. Where he continues to flow in this thought. And he, and he, and he's really transitioning into a prayer. Look at the first verse. For this reason, I, and then a striking break in, in the text. Um, a parenthesis. Paul often does this. He'll start a thought and then he'll stop and he'll go back and he'll cover something and then he'll catch you up to where he originally was at. And he does this in our chapter. The chapter breaks out logically. Verses 1 through 13, and then verses 14 through the end, through verse 21. Verse 1 is the beginning of a prayer. For this reason. Then he breaks. He breaks. He picks it back up in verse 14. For this reason. He, he goes back to his original prayer, his original thought. So... What we're dealing with here is not a prayer, but it is the root of the prayer. It is the basis of the prayer. It's how Paul can pray what he eventually prays in verses 14 through 21. And so, 
we're kind of getting the groundwork laid, put in place, so we can understand the pastoral prayer in 14 through 21. We read that prayer, we pray that prayer all the time, all, all, all the time, a lot of times, a lot of times. We paraphrase it often, but we need to understand the ground from which it rises, the basis for which it is built, okay? What truth is he praying about in verses 14 through 21? The answer is not, we don't have to conjecture an answer, we have the ground. Paul gives it to us in 1 through 13. So we're going to take some time to unpack the truths here. Paul is is about to pray again with the Ephesians. This whole letter is saturated with prayer, with teaching us to pray, examples of prayer, outlines of prayer from 1 through chapter 6. He covers the book with prayer. You would get the idea that Paul is a praying man. You would get the idea from the letter to the Ephesians that Paul spends a lot of his day praying. And you'd get the right idea. And it's not because he didn't have anything better to do. It's because he knew that's the only thing, in large part, that would cause the work of God to be accomplished, is prayer. Dependence on God in prayer. Everything he does in his ministry on this earth, Paul did, covered, surrounded, grounded, carried out in prayer. And so, I I just want to confess to you, I'm not like him enough. I don't pray enough. I find myself thinking I'm wasting time. I got to get up and get busy about what I need to do. But Paul was humble enough, thoughtful enough, committed enough to the gospel and to Jesus Christ that he would not rise to do unless he had covered and saturated and grounded it in prayer. It wasn't enough to just go get busy. But rather he desired to pray. So let's look at this. For this reason. For what reason we might ask the Apostle Paul? What reason are you speaking about? Well, the reason he just gave in chapter 2. He's bowing his knee to pray before God for every family in heaven that is named on the earth by the name of God. He's straining now to pray for them according to the truths in chapter 2, 11 through 22, or more particularly, verses 15 through 22, or even tighter, we might say, he bases his prayer on 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He bases his prayer, the ground of his prayer is this thought. The Gentiles and the Jews have become Christian. They are in Christ. That's the ground of his prayer. And that that foundation is earth shattering. We're going to look at that mystery 
So what is Paul's language? That mystery in just a moment. Before we get there, though, let me give some context. He's concerned here, the apostle is, with suffering. You pick it up in the first verse. I, Paul, a prisoner. The people, the people in Ephesus are concerned for Paul. Why? Because he was arrested in Jerusalem. He was taken to Caesarea and later ushered into prison in Rome to wait for Nero. The great line to try him. And they feel responsible. Why? You might, you might misunderstand why Paul was arrested. Why he was persecuted. Why he was beaten. It was not because he taught them that Jesus was the Messiah. That's not why he was arrested. If you go to Acts 22, he teaches Jesus as Messiah early in the message. It was not until verse 22 when he said, the Gentiles are being gathered into this promise with us Jews that they raised their voices and said, rid the earth of this man. These Gentiles in Ephesus feel responsible for Paul being in prison because it is because he went to the Gentiles that the Jews arrested him. Not because he preached Jesus. That, that, that for the common Jew, that the Messiah would come. Now for the leaders of the Jews, that's a problem. But for the masses, for the masses in their Jewish thought, that was okay. It was when he crossed the line and he said, this gospel is not just for you Jews, it's for the Gentiles. Then they said, rid the earth of him, kill him, put him out, never hear it from him again. What charge did they bring against him? Preaching Jesus? In Acts 22? Was it because he preached Jesus? No. He dared to bring a Gentile into the temple. He didn't. They had seen him with Trophimus from Ephesus. And Trophimus was in town with Paul, and Paul went in to worship and purify himself, and he was going to preach in the temple this controversial message of the Jews and Gentiles being brought together through Christ. And when they saw him enter in, they assumed Trophimus was with him, and he defiled the temple. So what they were angry about, more than about his message of Jesus, was what kind of message he was preaching, which is... Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. Gentiles don't have to become Jews. They're Christian. And Jews, furthermore, don't have to continue to worship the way our fathers did through the ceremony of the law because Jesus is enough. That got him in all kinds of trouble. So it was an indirect attack at the gospel. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by that because indirect attacks are the most popular attacks of Satan. That's his tactic. He doesn't come at us often straight ahead. He comes at us from the side. They found this side issue, and the issue was the Gentiles. And Paul speaking to a Gentile majority, Gentile church in this letter. And Trophimus, 
I'm left to believe, has gone back to Ephesus and spread the word that Paul has been arrested because he preached unity between Jews and G- Gentiles, and they charged him with bringing me into the temple. And now this church is all undone because we've caused our great friend Paul to suffer. And Paul wants to make it clear to them, you're not the cause of my suffering. Let's look here. We can, we can rely on four realities during our suffering. Suffering is a foregone conclusion for Christians. Maybe not for our generation, but it is from the biblical perspective. You will suffer for being a Christian. If you do not suffer, you have reason to question your faith. You have reason to say, am I a Christian? If there's no suffering in your life as a result of Christ, we're left to wonder. Because Paul says we enter the kingdom through many trials and troubles. Jesus said, if they persecuted the master of the house, what will they do to the servants? Don't think yourself greater than the master. We're his servants. So if they were, they were bold enough to persecute and kill him, they will persecute us. So I'm not preaching to a crowd or an audience that I think might suffer. I'm saying to you, as a church, you will suffer. Some of you are suffering now. Some of you are already in the throes of suffering, whether it be disease, cancer, or some other disease, whether it be family that is turned against you that has singled you out, that has attacked you, that has ostracized you, that has cut you away because they know you stand for the true gospel, whether it's loss of job, whether it's loss of popularity, whether it's that others shun you because you're strange and you're different and they don't want anything to do with you. Whatever the cause of your suffering, some of you are already suffering. And those who are not suffering now, your turn is coming. Because there's no exemptions. Everyone suffers. Everyone. And so Paul gives us four realities to hold on to in this passage in verses 1 through 3 during our suffering. Look at the first. First of all, he tells them, you should not be discouraged because I am a prisoner of Christ. His first, his first admonition to the people of Ephesus during suffering is this. I am not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not here by circumstance in this prison. You didn't cause me to be here. I'm here because of Christ. I am the prisoner of Christ. If you and I had that attitude about our suffering. It would change the way we suffer. We would stop complaining about the suffering and start focusing on the Lord. We would take our eyes off the moment and look at the eternal. Paul's saying the first great reality you need to hold on to in suffering is you belong to Christ. And you're suffering because of Him. You're suffering because of Him. The Apostle Paul knows that he is in prison because the Jews arrested him. 
And they were ready to kill him. And then he cried out, I'm a Roman. And the head man said, you can't kill a Roman citizen this way. He has a right to see Caesar. So they took him to Caesarea. And then they took him on into Rome and they imprisoned him there so he'd get his day in court. It's almost a mockery. If you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's no doubt what's going to happen. Paul's not sitting in prison thinking the Hail Mary's coming. Nero's going to have a change of heart. When I go out in front of him, he's going to say, Oh, it's, it's Paul. You're a great man. Great civic leader. Go back and lead the people. This is, this is a friend. He had no delusions of such. He said, at my first offense, no one rose. No one was with me. But Christ was with me. Why? Because he's a prisoner of Christ. That's all he cared about. That's all he focused on. Nero didn't scare the Apostle Paul. Why? Not because the Apostle Paul was some macho superhero. That's what I do to the Apostle Paul. But that's not who he was. He was a man that couldn't stand in front of a church of believing Christians without fear and trembling. And stammering speech. What made him so courageous? He viewed himself to be in the hand of a sovereign God. There was no need to fret. There was no need to kick against it. There was no need to resist it or try to avoid it. God brought him here. God placed him here because... He is sovereign and this is His will. And so I'm His prisoner. The first great reality is the sovereignty of God. That's what we have to hold on to in suffering. It doesn't do us any good to hold on to the hope of cures. It doesn't do us any good to hold on to the hope that our lost friends are somehow going to accept us even though they remain lost. It doesn't do us any good to hold on to some earthly apartheid and peace. That does us no good. What we have to hold on to is the sovereignty of God and the goodness of Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism asked this question to children. What is your only comfort in life and death? That's not a question we ask five and six-year-olds that much these days. But the Heidelberg asked it, and this is the answer, my only comfort in life and death is that Jesus Christ, my Lord, has died for me, and I belong to Him, and I am not my own. So when I suffer, Paul would say, hold on to Christ. You're not there. Don't focus on the second causes. Focus on the primary cause. I'm Christ. I belong to Him. He goes on to say this, and not one hair of my head may fall. Apart from my Heavenly Father. Oh, that our children were taught and grasping this truth. That everything that happens to you, no matter how small or great, comes through the hand of your Heavenly Father. Paul wants these Ephesians to understand, you're not the cause of my suffering. The Jews are not the cause of my suffering. I'm not sitting in a Roman prison because of all these circumstances that just didn't go my way. I'm the prisoner of Christ. He has taken me to Rome. Paul, even later, will exult in the opportunity to preach the gospel in the court of Caesar. This man who had no thought that he was going to live was glorying in what was going to kill him. He was saying... Hey, 
I've longed to preach the gospel in Rome since I was called to preach to the Gentiles. And I've got my opportunity not just to talk to some servants on the street. I get to talk to Caesar. And so this is the view that comes. These are the actions that come from a man who is convinced that God is sovereign. And he's saying, hold on to it. I, he, he's saying to this beloved church, church, I'm the prisoner of Christ. Don't look at my circumstances as an interruption in God's plan. Don't look at it as a tragedy. No, no, no. I belong to Christ. And not one hair falls from my head, but what the Heavenly Father in Heaven says it will. Everything happens under Him. I'm not the prisoner of Caesar. I am the prisoner of Christ, and therefore I'm free. That would be Paul's example. With chains standing in front of Caesar, he would say, I'm freer than all men. I'm freer than all men. He's standing on the shoulders of great men from the past. You're familiar with the story of Job, I assume. Job in one day, loses everything. Our community can identify. You've gone out and seen others who the whirlwind, the wind that comes from the four directions all at once, destroys and flattens the house. You've seen the roof sitting on top of rubble. This is Job's life. All of his children are killed in one house that collapsed. All of his livestock is stolen. All of his servants are murdered. There's nothing left but these servants that come to bring the report of all the death and suffering and his wife. And when he gets the report, he tears his, he rents his garment. He tears his garment and falls to the ground and cries out. What? Oh, the Chaldeans. And their mighty strength. He tore his clothes and fell on the ground and cried out, Terrible whirlwinds that kill my children. Maybe one further. Maybe he falls on the ground and cries out, I knew Satan was against me. No. I came out of my mother's womb naked, and I will go back to there naked. The Lord gave, and the Lord has, say it, I've worked alongside many of you in the, the, the recovery from this tornado, and i got to be honest with you, the worst trick you can play on those poor people in Ohatchee and Webster's chapels to tell them God had nothing to do with their destruction. That's the worst fool's trick you can ever play on them. That's the worst false confidence you can ever give. Oh, God didn't have anything to do with this. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whenever his skins broke out into boils, and he was laying in the trash heap, scraping his wounds for relief, and his wife said, curse God and die, he said, shall I serve God in the good times and not the bad? 
The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The first great reality you better hold on to, according to Paul, Job, and all the Scripture in suffering, is this. Jesus Christ is sovereign. And you are where you are because He has put you there. It's not an interruption to the plan. It is the plan. Second, in this passage He says that the Ephesians should not be discouraged because He is suffering for their sake. Look what it says. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul was overjoyed to be a prisoner for the sake of the Gentile believers. Paul wasn't begrudging. Paul wasn't angry. Paul wasn't bitter. Paul didn't say, oh, why didn't I just keep my mouth closed about this Gentile mystery? Why not just preach to the Jews, my countrymen, whom I would give my own soul for, that they would come into Christ? Why didn't I just stay with my own? He's not saying that at all. He's saying, I'm the prisoner for Christ Jesus' sake and for the sake of the Gentiles. He's not angry or discouraged. He's encouraged and overjoyed at his suffering. That should be particularly encouraging to you and to me because the reason you sit in an assembly today hearing the Word of God preached is because the Apostle Paul, under the sovereign direction of Jesus Christ, preached the Gospel to the Gentiles. That's the reason you're here today. Had he been discouraged by his his uh, persecution and suffering, and had he quit, and had he not viewed it as the sovereign work of a sovereign God, and been overjoyed to suffer on their behalf, you and I might not be saved. Jesus said, you don't go into the house of a strong man, lest you bind that strong man first, and then carry away his belongings. So Jesus bound the strong man. Satan no longer deceives the nations. In the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel was a bright light, intended to draw all men designed to worship. We see it throughout the Old Testament. But this is the way that happened. The few Gentiles that are saved come to salvation becoming Jews taking on circumcision and the ceremonial law, and there were very few who would hear that message. Only a few. The majority of the Gentile nations were dead pagans. So Jesus says, listen, when I go to the cross, I will bind that strong man who has held in prison sway all the souls of the Gentiles. I'll bind him. I will defeat him. And he will no longer deceive the nations. And Paul says, I'm in prison because I'm a prisoner of Christ and I'm preaching to the Gentiles. I'm bringing the message of salvation to you. And we're about to get to that message and it is a great message. From his heart, the apostle loves, the apostle loves this Jewish man, this Pharisee of the Pharisees, this Hebrew of the Hebrew. He loves the Gentiles. Don't be upset. Oh, listen, it's my joy to be in prison on your behalf. I'll take prison rather than lose you. And rather than lose the privilege of eternally fellowshipping with you Gentiles, I'd take prison over that any day 
That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. That's the second great truth that we need to hold on to in our suffering. Is that God is sovereign and we are carrying out His plan with love. We have a great message. Third, he says they should be encouraged based on the fact that God gave him stewardship or administration over the Gentiles. The Gentiles are to be encouraged. Notice it says in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship. Now, that can be confusing, can't it? It might say, if you have heard. This is not conjecturing Paul hoping that others have heard. It's better read, since you have heard of my stewardship. Paul knows they've heard of his ministry. He's confident they know the gospel. He's, he's certain that they know the Jews and Gentiles are being brought together in Christ. He's saying, you most certainly have heard it. Since you have heard of it, that's the way he's talking here. He's very confident. In other words, God had not only saved Paul, Jesus Christ had, a, had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He was powerfully converted, but God in His mercy saved him and made him a messenger of grace to the Gentiles. Of course, all those Gentiles knew about this. They gloried in it. I can imagine that in the church, you have the Jews and you have the Gentiles, and the Jews are saying, look at what God has done. Look what He's done. He's brought in the Gentiles. And the Gentiles say, and by the hand of the Apostle Paul. They loved Him. He was their father. He was their spiritual father. He who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and trying to persecute and kill the Jews because they believed in this Messiah who brought the Gentiles into the faith now is the great jewel, crowning jewel, the apostle to the Gentiles. His encouragement to them is, listen, God's given me a plan. He's given me a task. To fulfill. I'm in prison, yes, but I'm a prisoner of Christ who's sovereign over me. I'm in prison for your sake, yes, but it's not drudgery and I'm not discouraged. It's joy. It's joy. I'd rather have you and be in prison than be free and lose you. Oh yeah, I'm in prison and I'm suffering for preaching this gospel, but that's what God called me to do. He gave me this stewardship. He entrusted me with this job. No one else could do this job but me. He's made me for this. This is my purpose. It's intentional. It's thought out. It's planned. And he has accepted and bowed the knee to it. Fourth, great truth is that the Ephesians should be encouraged because God has given a fuller revelation of the gospel to Paul than the revelation of the old covenant. Paul has a fuller revelation. Look what it says. Since you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written to you briefly. What is this idea of mystery? It's a strange word to us. Paul uses it often in his writings. It's used 
19 times in the New Testament. Most of them by the Apostle Paul. Some of them by the Gospel writers. Just a couple of times. The mystery of the fig tree. The mystery of the kingdom of God. And a few times in Revelation. The mystery which God had revealed to John. But Paul uses it more than anyone. This word, mystery. And what he's saying by it is, we have a fuller understanding than even the prophets of the Old Testament. What he's saying is, I've been given the task to preach to the Gentiles the message that Isaiah didn't preach fully, Ezekiel didn't preach fully, Jeremiah didn't preach fully, John the Baptist didn't preach fully, but because Christ came and has given me this mystery, I preach it to you fully. We are not a mystery religion. Christianity is no mystery left. The mystery is revealed in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets longed to preach this message. They preached it in fuzzy part. They, they, they talked about it. You'd say, what's the mystery? They talked about it, but Paul's preaching it confidently. Paul is glorifying or glorying in the fact that Jesus Christ has made the mystery known. It's clear. The Apostle Paul's on fire. He's burning with the same fire that burned in Jeremiah's bones. Preaching this gospel. We often place Paul on a great pedestal because he was to us the super apostle. Paul never viewed himself this way. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12-17 says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. I am the chief, he says. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I often excuse myself in relation to how Paul preached and how he taught and how he lived because I say, well, he's the super apostle. He saw a great vision in Damascus, on the road to Damascus. He was personally taught by Jesus Christ. I don't have that privilege. I can't act like Paul. Paul and Jesus and the Bible don't give us that out. The only thing that emboldened Paul, the only thing that made him courageous, the only thing that made him willing to suffer was the mystery of Jesus Christ. You and I have no excuse. We can't cop out on, I'm not Paul. Paul is not being set aside in some way as a special case. Well, if we were just like Paul, we would be able to suffer like him. No, we can suffer like him. Why? How? We can suffer like him 
when His passion becomes our passion. When His burning desire becomes our burning desire. And what is it? That the mystery of Jesus Christ be made known to all men. Now you can suffer and never be discouraged. Now you can die from a disease, from torture, from from old age, whatever might take you from this earth. You can die in confident faith, holding out to the end the mystery of Jesus Christ. We have no excuse for weakness because we have the fullness of the Spirit and we have been given the mercy of Christ and we understand the mystery of Christ. And so we should be preaching it. We should be living it. We now know the mystery of Christ. That's verses 4 and 5. We know the mystery of Christ. If you look at these verses, the word mystery stands out. Look at it. Verse 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it, as it has been made known or revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you skip ahead to verse 9, he uses the term again. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So we see this word mystery is a key word here. In, in the world Paul lived in, there were many mystery religions. But this is not what Paul's speaking of. This is not the idea of a fraternity or sorority where only the insiders know the secret pledges and chants. And it's a mystery to everyone else. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's not a, like the Masonic Lodge. Buildings with no windows. Strange and unorthodox chants and words and sayings and funerals that are unrecognizable to the rest of the world so that they, everyone say, what are those people all about? That's not the kind of mystery we're talking about here. It's not the Hardy Boys that I grew up reading. It's not... Unfortunately, uh, for me, and when I hear mystery, I think of Madlock. I, I think about Murder, She Wrote. These are, the, these are the mystery shows that my house, we watched. Right? There was always some missing link, and, and everyone was in the dark about it. And then all of a sudden, poof! Matlock was smarter than everybody. Right? That's not what Paul's talking about. It's not a completely hidden truth. It's a truth previously misunderstood, not known, but now it's known. You often hear people talk about these verses, talking about the mystery of Jesus. You know, it's the mystery of Christ. As if there's still a mystery. That's not a mystery anymore. Unfortunately, many are mystifying us by their explanation of it, but it's truth, and it is revealed, and it's been given here by revelation by the Apostle Paul. Look here. The word mystery means open secret. That's the best way for you to understand it. When you look at the Greek term mysterion, the word is an open secret. In the days of Jesus and Paul, the ministers of the gospel in the years thereafter, 
In the first and second century, there were a lot of mystery religions. And in those mystery religions, there were certain secrets that only certain people knew, like fraternities, sororities, the Masons in our day. If you were on the inside, you knew it. If you were on the outside, you had no idea. That's not the Christian mystery. A Christian mystery is an open truth. In other words, the Apostle Paul doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't tell certain people one thing and then tell other people another thing. He doesn't say, we're the frozen chosen. Let me tell you about this mystery. Now, when you go out there into the world, don't tell anybody else. That's silly. It's an open truth. He calls it a mystery... Because it's something known only by divine revelation. Now we get the truth. You see, I'm preaching, and many of you, uh, when I'm preaching the gospel, when I'm clearly, many of you are right there with me. It's so clear to you. It's crystal clear. And yet a lost man sitting in our midst might say, I don't understand what these people are talking about. It's not that we're hiding anything from him. It's that God hasn't revealed it to him. So he can sit under the plain, common sense teaching of the gospel and walk out absolutely in the dark. Not because we're hiding it. We're preaching it. We're proclaiming it. You walk out with him and you say, man, wasn't that powerful? It's so clear. And he's like, clear to who? What language are you speaking? You see, because the mystery was made known by divine revelation. Paul received the revelation, and now he's preaching this revelation to others. Notice that he says the mystery of Christ, in verse 5, has now been revealed to us, to his holy apostles and prophets. Again, I say that's another reason why we take these to be the prophets in Paul's day, not the Old Testament. He's talking about New Testament prophets, ministers who went about with the apostles proclaiming the gospel. He says, the apostles and prophets have had this revealed, this clear truth of the gospel, and now we're preaching it. We're making it known to everyone. But only those who have divine revelation, illumination from the Spirit, can fully grasp it. You wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know the truth of the gospel unless God revealed it to you. You're not smarter than your neighbor. You're not better than your neighbor. You're not in the right clique or the right organization or the proper church. You know it because God taught it to you. The mystery is an open teaching. It's an open secret made known by the Spirit of God to the hearts of those who believe. Third, we see in this 4 and 5 section here that the mystery is something that was once concealed But now it's revealed. It was hidden. In the days of the Old Testament, it was not fully and clearly understood. But it is now open and clearly displayed and proclaimed in the preaching of the apostles and the prophets, pastors and teachers, even to this day, in the New Covenant. Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit fell, and since the ascension of Jesus Christ, this mystery has been publicly proclaimed for everyone. Now you say, now wait a minute. In Genesis 12, God promised that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. Is that not the mystery? Yeah, it is. Sure it is. But how many Jews in Jesus' day knew that? Believed that? Very few. You say, well, you read Isaiah, Carlton, and it's clear. The glory of the Lord shall fill the earth, and all of its inhabitants will praise Him. 
Is that not the mystery? Yes. But again, I ask you, how did the people in Paul's day interpret those things? Well, they interpreted them mainly wrongly. They thought the Gentiles sure are coming, but what they're coming to is an earthly Jerusalem to worship through the ceremonial law, to take on circumcision and become a Jew like us. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. They're not coming to be Jews. They're not saved through Jewishness. They're coming into Christ. They're not having to obey laws, regulations, ceremonies, circumcision, washings, go to the temple. They're not having to do this because of Christ. That's the mystery. It wasn't that the Gentiles would come was a mystery. They knew that. Eventually, God would bring the Gentile nations. But they understood that He would bring them through Jewishness, making them like the Jews. And now Paul is saying, circumcision doesn't matter in the flesh. Ceremonial law has been torn down and done away with. Matter of fact, the temple that you go to and take such pride in is not the temple of God. The temple of God is the lively stones being built one on another. The living temple, Jesus and His people, the church. And so we have fully revealed this mystery. And we see that like in other places, it is misunderstood often. It's plainly revealed and plainly preached, but it's misunderstood. What is the mystery, plainly? Well, how can I make it clear? The Apostle Paul tells us in chapter 2, the mystery is this. You have been reconciled to God by grace alone, and because you're reconciled to Him, Jews and Gentiles, you are reconciled to one another. You are one man. You are one nation. You are one building. You are one group. It's not Jewish. It's not Gentile. It's Christian. It's Christ. That's the mystery. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. He uses that term. Look in the passage. He's made not, which was not made known to the sons of men in our generation, as it was, it has now been revealed by the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, here it is. We're not left to guess. It's not a secret. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are sons of Abraham. They are receiving the promise. They are with us in Christ. They are members of the same body. They have been grafted in. There is one new man, and his name is Christ. And in him are Jews and Gentiles saved by grace through faith in him and him alone. Not their Jewishness, not rituals, not washings, not buildings, but through Him and Him alone. And so we see here the mystery is plain. Jews and Gentiles, never again Christian. Christian. The biggest controversy in the early church was this mystery. And they are not only... Heirs and members, they are partakers of the promises. The promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the children of God. A chosen inheritance. The church has been grafted into Christ. 
as one man, not Jew, not Gentile, but Christian. You say, now wait a minute. That was in the Old Testament. Yes, it was. But unfortunately, many uh, misunderstood. And they said there was coming a day when all would flood into the physical, earthly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And they would offer sacrifices and they would be circumcised and they would become Jew. And Paul says, no, it is not that. The mystery is, notice what he says, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That is a good way to communicate. He doesn't say proselytized Gentiles. He does not say Gentiles who take on the marks of Jewishness, carry out our laws and customs, obey Moses. He says Gentiles, in the fullest sense of the word, are now heirs with us. They inherit the promise. They are members of our body. This Old Testament truth is fulfilled in Christ, the son of David, the king of kings, the one who will reign forever. And so the Apostle Paul says, I declare an open secret to you. It's not going to be the way you thought it was. It's not going to be that he's going to establish an earthly Jerusalem-centered, ethnocentric kingdom. He's not going to do it. But the Gentiles, by faith in Jesus Christ, are going to be joint heirs, joint members, joint partakers of the promises of God to Abraham. The ceremonial law, chapter 2, is no more. Israel, no more. We are trans-ethnic, transnational people. We are the church, and we go on forever. And believing Jew and Gentile together will worship the one true God because the one who has fulfilled the ceremonial law, Jesus, has not only reconciled them to God, the Gentiles, but reconciled them to one another, Jews and Gentiles. Apostle Paul says, I delight at being able to preach this message to you even if I go to prison and die. This message is worth dying for. You know, when Paul preached that Jesus was the Messiah... Again, I reiterate, he rarely met open, violent opposition. It was when he dared say the Gentiles were co-heirs, partakers, inheritors, joined in the same body as the Jews. It's important. This truth is important to you and to me because it's the only thing that we as ministers of the gospel should ever preach to anyone. That you have no hope outside of Christ. It's not in your Jewishness nor in your Gentileness. It is in Christ that you have hope. Because the only thing that Paul has to offer, he has to offer in Christ. Well, my friends, that's all he needs to offer. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And what we have and what we are, if you realize it, if you accept it, changes you. You're no longer, you're no longer held captive by the philosophy of this world, but you're free. So what are you living for? 
I want to ask you. Is Paul's burning desire to preach this mystery that Jesus Christ is all in all and that He has reconciled all things in heaven and earth to His Father by Himself? Is that your, is that your burning desire? Is that what you're living for? Or are you like many others still living for the flesh? Still groping for the things that this world wants and can deliver. If that's you, run to Christ. And I ask you, church, is your hope, is your hope in Christ alone? We have a bad habit of thinking we're saved by Christ. And then we live our lives. We live them. Paul would never say this. Paul would encourage you and say, leave behind everything else you have all your hope in. Your family, your possessions, your position, your religion. Leave it and hold on to Christ. It's going to cost you everything. You're not following Christ if it hadn't cost you everything. You're not following Christ if you're not suffering. This is is the way Paul talked. Is it that we're not suffering because we're still holding on to mom and dad's religion? The world's thoughts? The sin of the past? Have you let go and held on to the only one who saves? I can't answer it. I can't answer it, but I can beg you to answer. Give account. Your religion is not good enough. Your family is not good enough. Your deeds are not enough. Nothing will save you but this Christ. And that He has made whoever is in Him, Jew or Gentile, one. And so the writer of Hebrews closes our sermon. We have not come, brothers and sisters, to Mount Sinai. To a thundercloud that causes our knees to shake. Because we cannot fulfill what is required. But rather we come to Zion. To the heavenly hill with the heavenly king whose blood speaks louder than Abel. When you come to Zion, when you come to salvation, when you come to the hill of Zion, the heavenly hill, listen, you're not standing on any, just any blood. You're standing on the blood of Christ that cries out, save him, save him, he's mine. He's mine. If you come any other way, you will be shaken and you will fall. If you try to climb over the wall and come any other way, you will die. Come to Him. Stand on His blood. Cry out with the saints. He is holy. 
He is king. He has saved me. Leave it all. Suffer it all for this mystery. Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father.